Welcome to the January 26th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, new research shows that in children with sickle cell disease, stem cell transplantation normalizes blood flow in the brain. The improvements in cerebral hemodynamics seen in this study may help explain the stroke protection seen following transplant in this high-risk patient population. Up next, a research article providing new insights on thrombocytopenia related to the Gale gene, including the identification of several previously unreported variants. The findings highlight the importance of Gale in the glycosylation of proteins that play a role in the production and function of platelets. Finally, we'll review a brief report on NPM1 mutated AML with adverse cytogenetics in light of the updated ELN 2022 classification. In short, Adverse risk cytogenetics remain significantly associated with unfavorable prognosis under the refined definitions, supporting the recent categorization of this entity as adverse risk. The first research article is entitled, Normalization of Cerebral Hemodynamics Following Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplant in Children with Sickle Cell Disease. The first author is Monica L. Hulbert of Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. It's known that children with sickle cell disease have a high risk of stroke and silent cerebral infarction. The risk of these events can be reduced by chronic red blood cell transfusions. However, some children, about 20%, still experience recurrent strokes or new or enlarging silent cerebral infarctions. This may be due to problems with blood vessels in the brain, acute episodes of anemia, or illnesses that affect the delivery of oxygen to the brain. However, children with sickle cell disease who receive a curative stem cell transplant have lower risks of future strokes or silent cerebral infarction, compared to those who continue to receive just red blood cell transfusions. Why transplant reduces risk of stroke and infarction is uncertain. Hulbert and colleagues hypothesized that in children receiving a stem cell transplant for SCD might normalize cerebral hemodynamics as compared to pre-transplant baseline levels. They used magnetic resonance imaging to determine cerebral blood flow, or CBF, a measure of the volume of blood reaching brain tissue per minute, and oxygen extraction fraction, or OEF, which is the proportion of oxygen removed from hemoglobin in brain tissue. Previous studies have shown that CBF and OEF are elevated in individuals with sickle cell disease, believed to be a physiological response to chronic anemia, and curative stem cell transplant has been shown to improve both CBF and OEF, but it was not yet known whether CBF and OEF return to values seen in healthy controls. The prospective single-center cohort study by Hulbert and co-authors included a total of 13 patients with sickle cell disease of whom 10 received a stem cell transplant and completed pre- and post-transplant MRI brain imaging. MRI evaluations occurred at 1 to 3 months before transplant and again at 12 to 24 months after transplant. Three had a history of overt strokes, five had a history of silent strokes, and two MRIs showed no evidence of cerebral infarctions. Seven were being treated with chronic red blood cell transfusions prior to transplant. Transplants from HLA-identical matched sibling donors were performed in seven subjects, and three had eight of eight matched unrelated bone marrow donors. These patients were compared to a previously reported control group of 20 patients treated only with continued transfusions and a second group of 20 siblings of SCD patients. 
The key finding is that following stem cell transplantation, cerebral hemodynamics returned to normal. Before transplantation, the children in the study had higher CBF and OEF as compared to healthy controls. After HSCT, both CBF and OEF were significantly lower and similar to those of the healthy controls. At the post-HSCT time point, there was no significant difference in CBF or OEF between the children who had received HSCT and the healthy controls. In their study, the researchers also compared changes in CBF and OEF after transplant to changes in these variables after transfusion therapy in children with sickle cell disease. They found that the children who received HSCT had a larger decline in OEF after the procedure than those who received transfusion therapy. Similarly, CBF declined more after HSCT than after transfusion therapy. Taken together, investigators say, these data demonstrate that CBF and OEF normalize following hematopoietic stem cell transplantation in children with sickle cell disease. The researchers speculate that the normalization of cerebral hemodynamics may be the result of a relaxation of compensatory mechanisms in the brain, which may explain the reduced risk of recurrent strokes following transplant. A commentary on these findings, entitled Anemia and Brain Hypoxia, was submitted by John C. Wood of Children's Hospital, Los Angeles. In the commentary, Wood says Hulbert and colleagues have demonstrated the normalization of cerebral hemodynamics following hematopoietic stem cell transplantation in these 10 children with sickle cell disease. Although the study did not compare HSCT to chronic transfusion with more aggressive transfusion thresholds, Wood says, the results suggest that current transfusion practices expose the brain to intermittent, detrimental anemia and cerebral hypoxia. He adds that these findings could have implications for potential treatments for sickle cell disease that are currently being studied in clinical trials. Looking at the finer points of the present work, the results demonstrate that for a given patient in the study, an increase in hemoglobin of 1 gram yields an improvement in oxygen-carrying capacity of more than 10%. With the development of more approved therapies, Wood says, it may be possible to implement combination treatment strategies that achieve hemoglobin levels that are closer to the lower limits of normal. The study also suggests that it may be time to rethink the current belief that moderate anemia or hemoglobin levels below 10 grams per deciliter is acceptable. Now, that may need to be reevaluated in light of its potential impact on cerebral oxygen delivery and brain damage. The next research article is titled, Novel Variants in Gale Cause Syndromic Macrothrombocytopenia by Disrupting Glycosylation and Thrombopoiesis. The first author is Anna Marin Quiles, who is with the University of Salamanca in Spain. This article extends our knowledge of inherited thrombocytopenias, a group of rare and diverse conditions that have low platelet count as a unifying factor. Many are associated with additional congenital abnormalities affecting various organs, as well as other diseases such as hematological malignancies, bone marrow failure, and non-hematological defects. These conditions are caused by aberrations in genes affecting megakaryopoiesis and or platelet function, and include a number of genes that affect glycosylation of surface proteins. Recently, high-throughput sequencing technology has revealed variants in several novel glycosylation genes. Among these is GALE, which encodes an enzyme called UDP-galactose-4-epimerase that is involved in both N-linked and O-linked glycosylation. 
Some variants in Gale cause an autosomal recessive disorder associated with generalized galactosemia and long-term complications that can include developmental delay, learning disabilities, poor growth, and in some cases cardiac failure and dysmorphic features. And emerging evidence links Gale defects specifically to several hematologic alterations. One report included six related individuals, homozygous for a Gale variant, and who had severe thrombocytopenia, febrile neutropenia, and mild anemia. Other case reports include a patient with bone marrow dysfunction and congenital heart disease, and another with pancytopenia and immune dysregulation. But more research is needed to strengthen the connection between Gale variants and blood disorders. That brings us to the present paper by Marin Quiles and colleagues, which provides new cases and new insights. They report on three patients from two unrelated families. All had lifelong severe thrombocytopenia and bleeding diathesis, plus mental retardation, mitral valve prolapse, and jaundice. The two related patients, a 37-year-old female and 45-year-old male, both had retinal disease and cataracts, and one had hip dysplasia. Both were previously diagnosed with immune thrombocytopenia and treated with corticosteroids, immunoglobulins, and for one, splenectomy. The third patient, a 38-year-old male, had previous diagnoses including D-George syndrome and gray platelet syndrome. Whole exome sequencing revealed compound heterozygosity of four rare variants of Gale, three of which were previously unreported. Investigators found enlarged, giant, and or gray platelets in all three patients. In addition, significantly reduced platelet aggregation after stimulation was demonstrated, as well as severe reductions in alpha and dense granule secretion. The enzymatic activity of UDP galactose 4 epimerase was severely reduced in all patients, resulting in impairment of platelet glycosylation. The hypoglycosylated platelets were non-functional and were prone to apoptosis, according to the investigators. The deleterious effect of the Gale variants on enzymatic activity was illustrated using immunoblotting assays, which revealed decreased levels of N-acetyllactosamine, a dimer of N-acetylglucosamine and galactose. In assessment of relevant platelet proteins known to undergo glycosylation, investigators observed a marked reduction of GP1B-alpha and glycosylated beta-1 integrin among platelets from these patients as compared to controls. In vitro studies of the patient's megakaryocytes showed normal ploidy and maturation. However, there was decreased proplatelet formation due to the impaired glycosylation of the GP1B-alpha and beta-1 integrins. Investigators also observed reduced externalization of GP1B-alpha and beta-1 integrin to the cell membrane in both megakaryocytes and platelets. The Gale variants were shown to impair the distribution of actin and filament A in the cytoplasm of megakaryocytes. Filament A promotes cellular adhesion by linking membrane glycoproteins, such as GP1B-alpha, to the actin cytoskeleton. In a commentary, Attila Braun of Ludwig Maximilians University and Elmina Mamadova-Bach of LMU Hospital Nephrology in Munich, Germany, say these findings show that Gale variants not only dysregulate the structure and function of platelets, but also reduce platelet production. They say the findings set the stage for more research on the role of impaired glycosylation in Gale mutant megakaryocytes and platelets. It is likely that such proteins are involved in platelet aggregation the formation of blood clots, the assembly of procoagulant complexes, and the process of blood clotting. Abnormal glycosylation of coagulation factors may also disrupt the normal regulation of blood clotting, 
leading to bleeding complications in patients with Gale gene variants. Finally, the creation of humanized mouse models that mimic Gale mutations could help researchers identify new mechanisms that are mediated by Gale in megakaryocytes and platelets and develop new therapeutic approaches. Finally, let's turn to a letter recently published in Blood, titled, Revisiting Coexisting Chromosomal Abnormalities in NPM1 Mutated AML in Light of the Revised ELN 2022 Classification. The first author is Linus Ongenent, who is affiliated with University Hospital Munster in Germany. This letter provides an update on classification of patients with acute myeloid leukemia harboring mutations of the nucleophosmin 1 gene, or NPM1. These mutations, which are among the most commonly found genetic alterations in patients with AML, have historically been associated with favorable prognosis, while wild-type NPM1 carries a poor prognosis. However, it has been shown that the presence of other mutations in addition to mutated NPM1 may also affect prognosis. For example, Onganent and co-authors previously reported on a large international collaborative study showing that cytogenetic abnormalities are significant factors in predicting the outcome of NPM1-mutated AML. Results of that study, published in 2019, showed that patients with NPM1 mutations, plus adverse risk cytogenetics, had the same poor prognosis as patients with wild-type NPM1. That was a novel observation with important clinical implications, since at the time, guidelines from the European Leukemia Net, or ELN, had considered NPM1-mutated AML to be indicative of a favorable outcome in AML, regardless of additional chromosomal abnormalities. The findings of the collaborative study resulted in a guideline update, as can be seen in the recently published ELN 2022 classification for AML. Presence of adverse risk cytogenetics is now indicative of adverse risk in patients with NPM1-mutated AML. The ELN also made some other updates to its classification, including the addition of two recurrent cytogenetic abnormalities to the adverse risk group. Also, the ELN no longer considers hyperdiploid karyotypes with multiple trisomies or polysomies in the absence of structural abnormalities as complex karyotypes. With the new ELN classification in place, the question arises, when the updated definitions are applied, does the negative impact of adverse risk karyotype abnormalities in NPM1 mutant AML still hold true? The combination of NPM1 mutations with adverse chromosomal abnormalities is uncommon occurring in only about 3% of cases. However, the influence of cytogenetics on the outcome of NPM1-mutated AML has important implications for treatment decisions after remission. Accordingly, Agenent and co-authors have gone back to their 2019 study to answer that question. They re-evaluated data from their original study, which involved 2,426 patients with NPM1-mutated AML and no FLT3-ITD mutation with high allelic ratio. Using the new classification criteria, 17.6% had abnormal karyotypes, including 14.1% with intermediate risk and 2.9% with adverse risk abnormalities. Chromosomal abnormalities were regrouped from adverse to intermediate risk in 12 out of 83, or 14%, of patients with NPM1-mutated AML due to the reclassification of hyperdiploid karyotypes. None of the patients had the two recurrent cytogenetic abnormalities that ELN added to the adverse risk group, which is understandable given the rarity of the co-occurrence of two disease-defining recurrent genetic abnormalities. 
After applying the new ELN 2022 definitions of cytogenetic risk, adverse cytogenetics were still associated with lower rates of complete remission, lower event-free survival, and overall survival, and a higher rate of relapse. This held true for both patients with NPM1 mutations and adverse cytogenetics, and those without NPM1 mutations who had adverse cytogenetics. Of note, adverse chromosomal abnormalities also remained predictive of a poorer outcome for patients who received allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplants in first complete remission. Based on these findings, Onganent and co-investigators conclude that, when the new and refined ELN 2022 definitions are applied, adverse risk cytogenetics continue to be significantly associated with poor outcomes in patients with NPM1 mutated AML when using the updated ELN 2022 definitions. They say these findings support the recent decision to classify NPM1 mutated AML with adverse risk chromosomal abnormalities as adverse risk. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.